Well, it's coming up to Easter time again, in case you hadn't noticed, and uh, I think we might be forgiven for being, feeling a little weary about that. I don't know how you feel about Easter coming again and again each year. The, um, maybe this is me becoming a grumpy old man, but there's a, it seems to me there's a sort of dreary inevitability about it. Uh, as happens every year, the BBC uh, will show programmes and the Sunday Times will be running all sorts of so-called exclusives, dredging up scholars from some unknown institution to try and discredit it all and do it all over again. Claims against the historicity of the biblical account, which are actually old hat and long discredited. Nothing new, are going to be dusted down and made again, as if they were new. Church goes across the country, I guess, will we'll do their best and put on a show of a kind. Uh, but there, I guess we might feel that some of it looks a little half-hearted. And, of course, we'll be hearing the Easter story all over again. Uh, but if we're honest, uh, we're going to be struggling to get excited. Now, why is this? Uh, I guess perhaps uh, because, for some of us, that story is over-familiar. You know, by this time, we've just heard it too many times for it to really engage. Uh, we think that we know it, so we've stopped listening. Or perhaps, on the other hand, um, the problem is that we're under-familiar with it. I can remember the Easter after, after I got converted and uh, sitting down with a, a group of Christians of a similarly immature bent and uh, reading through John's account of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the very account that we're going to begin reading this evening. And we got to the end... And we looked around at each other, and we just really didn't know what to make of it. Uh, We just really didn't know how to read this kind of material. Either way, whether over-familiar or under-familiar, I suspect our problem is this, uh, that we're under-reading the Gospel account such as John's. Now, on the other hand, we need to note that it is possible to over-read Gospel accounts. We can take the symbolism that John uses and and kind of overwork it, if you like, make that the big thing. Uh, We do want to avoid that kind of thing. But I suspect our danger is probably under-reading the Gospel accounts. We we miss the deep theology of the Gospels. We miss the interpretation of events that John is providing along the way, which makes this story so rich and, and relevant. So tonight I want us to start reading John's account Fresh. I want us to, to begin this reading of the, the, the gospel story of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the events leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus afresh. I want us to read with the expectation that every detail here is significant. You know, there isn't any padding here. Now, I'm not proposing anything fancy as we do this, I'm just, you know, suggesting that we read this carefully. And that as we do it, we ask all of the obvious questions. And I want us to to read with the expectation that this passage before us this evening is vibrantly purposeful. After all, John is the most explicitly purposeful of all the Gospel writers. Uh, Many of you will know that that John tells us towards the end of the Gospel why he wrote his account, uh, which culminates with a great miracle of of the resurrection. And he says this, Uh, In chapter 20, he says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's very helpful to keep in mind, because it means that when we look at any part of this gospel, 
Uh, we, can, we can expect it to be co- contributing to that overall purpose in some sort of way. We take any section of John's Gospel and we can expect us, it to be helping us to believe certain things, especially certain things about Jesus and what he's come to do, certain things that will help us to have life in Jesus' name. And uh, I think we'll find that that's certainly true for the passage that we're going to be reading together this evening. I want us to see this evening that there are three basic things John wants us to believe from this passage. One of them is about Jesus, one of them is about us, and uh, one of them is about what Jesus has come to do for us. And uh, from these three, there's one big implication for us. So the first thing to believe is about Jesus himself. Jesus is the Lord. Now, Jesus is also a man, of course. Uh, He is the Word become flesh, John has told us, right at the beginning of his account. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Nevertheless, he's also the Lord. And this, in fact, has been the consistent claim throughout the whole of this Gospel. Uh, Perhaps not in precisely those words. Uh, We might put it this way, I guess, as that Jesus is the Son of God, who is at one with his Father. That's the kind of language John has been using. Uh, I and the Father are one, Jesus has said. Uh, He has recently told his disciples, this is in the upper room, in the, the events leading up to where we are in chapter 18, he said this, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Their claim is that strong, they are that close. So okay, how do we see that here? In chapter 18. Well, I think we see it confirmed in the details that John remembers. Now, I doubt very much that John understood all these things at the time. You know, he's just tagging along with the other disciples and uh, some shocking things were happening. I don't suppose he had much time to think about it. Nevertheless, he did remember them. And uh, the big thing that seems to have come back to him later is the exchange between Jesus and the party that have come to arrest him uh, that we find in the middle of our passage this evening. It's very interesting. Of all the Gospel writers, it's only John who mentions this one. This is a memory, an eyewitness memory, that uh, seems to have had a big impact on John. Take a a close look at it again with me. I'm going to read from verses 4 to 6. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Now literally, as we'll mention in a moment, that's I am. And Judas the betrayer was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now uh, look uh, closely with me at that again. First uh, question I'd like to ask. Why is it that John includes that little aside in verse 5, towards the end of verse 5? Uh, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Remember what we uh, uh, wanted, to, wanted to claim at the beginning, that, that every, every detail in this is going to be significant. Well, it may well be that John, with that little phrase, wants us to remember from earlier in the Gospel account, the moment when Jesus predicted this, when Jesus predicted Judas in particular as a traitor. Which should remind us of what he said as he made that prediction. Um, I'll put the key verse on your handout. This is back from uh, the beginning 
of chapter 13. Jesus said this, I'm telling you now, I'm telling you now about this betrayal that's going to happen in the future, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. And in particular, you will believe that I am he. Literally, again, that's I am. Well, no, of course, all that has happened. Uh, So what are we to believe? That, quotes Jesus is I am. Just to make sure we don't miss that, John reports that Jesus uses that very phrase, I am, three times here in verses 5, 6, and 8. Now, the little phrase, I am, is, a, is an ambiguous phrase. You can translate it, as we've got here in our Bibles, as uh, I am he. In other words, it can be just a way of saying, uh, that's me. Uh, but it also, is also a highly suggestive phrase. We can link it back to the name that God uses to introduce himself to Moses, back in uh, Exodus chapter 3, where he calls himself, I am, or, or the one who is. That lies behind the name Yahweh, translated in our Bibles as the Lord. And that little phrase, I am, keeps popping up in the Bible as one of the ways which God uses to talk about himself. And I put a particularly striking example for you uh, from Isaiah chapter 46, and I put that on the handout. Let me read that to you. Even to your old age and grey hairs, I am he, again that's I am, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. To whom will you compare me or count me equal? Uh, And then taking up verse 9. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. Perhaps it's not surprising then that uh, the phrase provokes a response here. Uh, Indeed, it's done so before. Jesus has used this little phrase several times before in John's Gospel. Back in chapter 8, for example, he said, uh, Before Abraham was, I am. And those who heard him at the time understood exactly what he was claiming, and they picked up stones to stone him for what they took to be blasphemy. Here in chapter 18, verse 6, you can see that it provokes a somewhat different response when Jesus said I am they drew back and fell to the ground it is I think uh, one of the great moments in the gospel see on the one side we've got this apparently self-confident party of soldiers and officials and Pharisees they're carrying torches and lanterns and weapons on the other side stands just one man, Uh, the man thereafter, Jesus of Nazareth. There's no torches, there's no weapons, he's carrying no weapons. Uh, At first glance it seems a radically unequal match, this mob and this one man. And so it is a radically unequal match. But in the exact reverse of what the party at first might have thought, perhaps Jesus I wonder, carries uh, no light because he is the light. He created the light. He flung the stars into space. 
To whom will we compare him or count him equal? He knows all that's going to happen to him in verse 4 because he's the one who makes known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. They ask for Jesus of Nazareth, but they get, I am. They get the Lord. And you can see that as Jesus says, I am, it's a bit like an explosion. I guess we've all seen uh, explosions, special effects in films. You, you have it, the explosion, and then there are the, the, the shockwaves that spread out in all directions, leveling everything in their path. Well, it seems to be a very similar image here. Jesus says simply, I am, and the whole mob stagger backwards and fall over. The power and authority of those words knock them flat. Now, it's interesting, I think, that this is the last time that that phrase, I am, appears in John's Gospel. It seems that this is something that John wishes to put into place once and for all as he begins his account of the events leading to Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the first thing we need to believe if we want to understand what's going to happen. None other than I am, none other than the Lord, is going to the cross. So Jesus is, I am. He is the Lord. I think it forces us to rethink what's going on here between the disarmed party and and Jesus of Nazareth. And that brings us to rethink what the armed party here might represent. Uh, Which leads us to the second thing John wants us to believe. Not only is Jesus Lord, but he's also hated. He's hated by all mankind. That is, the armed party in this scene represents the whole world, all mankind, ranged against Jesus. Now, I wonder, does that sound a little strong to you, a little paranoid, perhaps? Hated? Strong language, isn't it? All mankind? Uh, Well, take a look again at verses 2 and 3 with me. Now, Judas, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So then, this is a a pretty large group, isn't it? And also, you will notice, a diverse group. And there's a detail here, which again, only John includes. That's the soldiers in verse 3. In other words, John wants to make it very clear right from the beginning, this is not just a local affair. This is not just a a Jewish affair. Uh, John is starting to develop something that is going to develop still further in the coming chapters. The Romans are involved too. This is Jew and Gentile. uh, The whole world working together. Clear enemies working with supposed friends. This is a picture of the violent hostility between all mankind and their God. Now let's work at this a little harder. I think there are two further details that that may help us and help to confirm the picture that builds up here and help us to understand it a little more fully. First of those at the beginning of verse 1. So verse 1, Jesus left with his disciples and, and crossed the Kidron Valley. You might think that's just an insignificant geographical detail. But I very much doubt that uh, John thought of it it that way. 
You see, he'll have, he will have remembered that, uh, but he will also remember that the Kidron Valley is what King David crossed when he was betrayed by his son, Absalom. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 15. What's uh, John hinting at with that association? Well, he seems to be saying something like, this is the Lord's anointed, the, the king of the Jews, being betrayed by his people, by those who once loved him, represented by Judas here, by those who should have loved him, represented here by the officials of the chief priests and the Pharisees. But the second and most Im- more important detail helps us to understand that the, the betrayal and rebellion that's being portrayed here is in fact greater than that experienced by David and connects with something even deeper back into the biblical story. Uh, you can see that at the end of verse 1. On the other side, uh, writes John, there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Uh, except that the The original uh, doesn't actually say olive grove. and In in fact, if you take pretty much any other translation of the Bible, you'll find it doesn't say olive grove here. It says, quite simply, garden. And only John, of all the Gospel writers, calls this place a garden. And why is that? Why has he chosen that particular language? Uh, Let me add into the mix here another detail from earlier on in the Gospel. As Jesus is predicting his betrayal at the beginning of the the meal in the upper room, he passes some bread to to Judas. And John comments in chapter 13, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan enters him. Okay, now step back a moment, uh, look at this scene again. This is a scene set in a garden. The Lord, the creator of the universe, is there. Satan is at work in one of the men, guiding a betrayal and a rebellion. And all mankind is represented by the crowd. In other words, John is trying to portray something much bigger here than even a Jewish king betrayed by his people. I think we can say this is a, this is a, this is a reenactment of the scene in the garden, right at the beginning of the Bible, Eden, where mankind rebelled against its creator and was judged for it. But there are some differences too. There are some connections with that, certainly. But there are some key differences too. The key difference here is that God is in the flesh. That changes things. See, now he looks vulnerable And the true violence of that original rebellion can now be seen in all its ugliness. The man and the woman in the garden of Genesis chapter 3 may have wanted to do away with God. That That was the essence of their sin against him. But now with God in the flesh, it looks like they can. And so they seize their opportunity. Now, I can imagine if, the, if you wouldn't yet describe yourself as a Christian, uh, then you may well be hesitating about some of the things that John is implying in this scene. First of all, uh, this implied claim that mankind, mankind hates God seems very strong, doesn't it? Surely people don't really hate him, do they? Well, what can I say? You don't actually have to look very far to, see, to find some very explicit hatred 
of God. Read some Richard Dawkins, read some Christopher Hitchens. If you're feeling particularly brave, uh, go to the Guardian paper website and uh, you go to the commenters free section on belief and you will find plenty of hatred against God. In all those places, rather bizarrely, you'll find people claiming that God does not exist at all. Nonetheless, nevertheless, their, their animosity uh, towards him is surprisingly personal for someone who doesn't exist. It's breathtaking, in fact. It's bitter. It's angry. It's quite disturbing. The second thing that may have you, uh, you may be balking at is this suggestion that, that all of us, uh, that you personally are represented in this party trying to arrest Jesus in John chapter 18. Uh, you may be able to see quite genuinely, I, I, I don't feel a deep hatred towards God. You know, this, this hatred word that you're using, that's not something that I would kind of say about myself. In fact, I don't feel anything much about him at all. Um, I suppose that's just the point, isn't it, when we come to think about it. You see, we may not be on the, on the front line of the crowd. We, we may not be those carrying the weapons in our hands or, or shouting the abuse. But we may well be in the background, looking on, not thinking or saying much, but certainly not defending Jesus. Just imagine yourself uh, for a moment back in occupied France in the, in the Second World War. Now, there were certainly those who were, who were actively collaborating with the evil of Nazism at the time. But there were many more, many more, just turning a blind eye, just trying to keep low, trying to keep their own lives as uninterrupted as possible. Were they collaborating too? Well, yes, I think they probably were. And that's probably where most of us are by nature. Our aggression against God is a passive aggression. We do not oppose the more active aggression. In fact, we find it quite convenient. We watch the BBC programmes. We read the Sunday Times pieces with, with some pleasure. They give us an excuse not to think about God. They allow us to get on with our lives without any rude interruption. Is that hatred? It may not be explicit hatred, but implicitly, yes, I think it is. And we do need to be able to admit that before we can start loving God, as we should. So Jesus is hated, hated by all mankind. But there's a third thing to believe here. He's hated by all mankind, and yet, and yet he's determined to take all of that upon himself for the sake of those he's been given. This is the third and most marvellous of, uh, uh, of the things I'm saying John wants us to believe this evening. But of all the things that we've looked at this evening, this, actually, this is the least believable. And I want us to be simply staggered at the way that this scene in the garden ends. Uh, you see, there's an absolutely breathtaking surprise here. and it's, It takes place, you may not have noticed it as we were reading it, and it takes place halfway through verse 8. Verse 8 begins like this. I told you that I am, Jesus answered. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that we hadn't read the rest of 
that verse and uh, the rest of the passage, and you, for some reason, don't know what's going to happen next. And uh, I want you to think for a moment, what would you expect to happen next? Remember, for example, how the original garden scene ended. Okay, so we're back in Genesis chapter 3. Humanity has rebelled against its creator, and the result was judgment. That's what we would expect. Try to destroy the source of all life, and what do you expect? The result was curse and death. You might also know how the Lord has acted in judgment to restore the recognition of his name in the past, to show himself as... I am. So in Egypt, he acted in judgment so that they would know that he is the Lord. The prophet Ezekiel tells us that when his own people later turned away from him to idols, uh, the Lord acted in judgment again so that they would know that he is the Lord. He acts in judgment to restore his name. And here in John 18, he's begun to show who he is with the words, I am. Mere words that have, have nonetheless knocked his enemies flat. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, what would we expect next at this point? What can they expect next at this point? Uh, burning sulfur raining down, perhaps? The consuming fire of God's just and righteous anger? The ground opening beneath their feet and swallowing them? All those things have happened before. All of them. But what does happen? Well, look again at verse 8. This is what happens. Jesus says simply, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. And in case we hadn't seen the breathtaking significance of those words, John adds this for us. This happened so that the words he'd spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Those are words he spoke back in chapter 6. This is the will of of him who sent me, he said, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up to life at the last day. Let's get our heads around what's going on here. Instead of the death and judgment we might expect when men attack their Lord and Creator, Jesus, at this point, is determined to deliver life. You see, this could be like a a horrific car crash. Uh, The worst kind of car crash. With one car recklessly overtaking on a band and crashing head-on with the massive lorry around the corner. From one direction comes the reckless, violent hostility and anger of humanity. As I was saying earlier, this is not a good anger. It's the, the kind of anger of a spoiled child wanting to be in charge. From the other direction, we might well expect justice. We might well expect a kind of justified anger such that the rebels get their just deserts. Many of us will have seen that the horrific outcome um, when a car crashes head-on with a lorry. You know, it's an extremely distressing thing to see. Um, the, the, the car crumpled like paper, the lorry often hardly with a scratch. At this moment, in verse 8, we should be bracing ourselves for such an impact. 
but it doesn't happen. The crash doesn't come. Halfway through verse 8, Jesus restrains himself. And you can see that further as we read on. We can see him restraining himself as he further goes on to restrain his disciple Peter. Peter, as usual, has not at all caught on to what Jesus is doing. Uh, That's quite usual. And he has responded to the arresting party in kind. He's taken a swipe at the chief priest's servant. Uh, The servant uh, presumably ducked like this and uh, lost his right ear. John saw this with his own eyes and may even have known the servant personally, which is why he identifies him by name as Malchus. But more importantly, John remembered very clearly what Jesus said in response. Verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus, you see, is restraining Peter. As he's restrained himself, he's restraining his disciple. He's effectively saying to Peter at this this point, now of course judgment is what you might expect but it's not for you to enact. And in any case, that is not what I have come to do. Put your sword away. Jesus restrains Peter, and as he does so, he adds one further detail to confirm the kind of thing that he's about to do and face. You see, we may know that what Jesus is determined to do will involve something terrible, but we might not yet quite realise how terrible it is. But when the prophets talked of God giving someone a cup, they most often meant giving the cup of God's judgment. So now I think we have all the the details here and uh, we can complete the picture, the portraits that John is painting. We've got all the different pieces of the jigsaw together, if you like. Okay, so, so this is the picture right at the beginning of John's account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a picture that's going to help us to understand and interpret those events as they unfold. The head-on collision between humanity and the Lord, between humanity and the great I Am, while he's going to take it all upon himself. The reckless hatred of humanity... He was going to take on as he is tried unjustly, as he is beaten, and has his nail to a cross and executed. The just judgment of God, the cup of God's just and righteous anger, he will take as he suffers and dies there. Both of those things. That's one thing that struck me afresh while I've been preparing this. I don't think I've seen this before with quite such clarity, that he's taking on both the hatred and the judgment of the hatred. What an extraordinary thing that is. And he's doing it all out of the purest of love to guarantee that he will not lose any of those he's been given, but raise them up to life at the last day. So there we have it. Jesus is the Lord. He's hated by mankind. Yet he's determined to take all that upon himself for those he has been given. And from these three things to believe, there is, I think, one big implication, and it's this. Don't fight. 
Stop fighting. Just trust. If you've uh, finally recognised your own face in this armed crowd that has come to arrest Jesus, then this is what you have to do. You need to lay down your arms against the Lord. And lay them down not just out of fear. You should fear, of course. You should fear the Lord. Jesus is a king to be feared. He is no less than the Lord himself. But lay down your arms also because he has come to give something. He has come to give life. Believe that and gratefully accept the life that he's giving. And for those of us who would call ourselves disciples of Jesus, we must also lay down our arms, uh, much as Peter had to. We must lay down our arms against the Lord's enemies. We mustn't be like Peter. We need to understand what Jesus is doing in the world. Our first instinct is very much like Peter's, isn't it? It's to react to the hostility of the world in kind. You know, I know that. I've felt that many, many times. But if we, if we properly understand what Jesus is doing, we, we won't do that. We can trust him to make sure that justice is done. We no longer need to fear that hostility. We can be secure in what Jesus is doing for us, that he certainly will not lose any of those he has been given. And so then, like Jesus, we can do the audacious thing. We can face the hostility without retaliation. We can face it uh, in an unexpected way, in love and with compassion, utterly confident as he was in the outcome. But either way, either way, I want us to leave this evening stunned and silenced by what Jesus does halfway through verse 8. As humanity charges at him with hatred, Jesus lays down the sword of judgment, ready to take it upon himself later. This garden scene doesn't end the same way as the first garden scene. How amazing is that? It does not end with death for humanity. It ends with a staggering, audacious twist. It ends with the possibility of life. Let's pray together.